you uh, have brought a Bible or have access to one, please open it now to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we are doing a series of messages on the life of David, and we are now uh, forging ahead into 2 Samuel, which uh, we're excited about because a lot of good things happen in 2 Samuel, and a lot of not-so-good things happen in 2 Samuel. Because uh, at this point in the history of redemption, the people of God are an utter mess and in need of leadership. And so we're going to see the process by which God establishes leadership for his people. Um, without a vision or without a leader, people perish. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read the entirety of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of the clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of Israel and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand out to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And they struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, he said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty 
have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor field of offerings, for there, there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love was to me extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we visit and revisit this story of the death of Saul and Jonathan and the destruction of the people of God under the old covenant. We do pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The books we know of is First and Second Samuel tell the story of two kings in the, uh, uh, of, of God's Old Testament people, that is the nation Israel. Saul's reign occupied the last couple of decades of the second millennium BC. The tragic story is told in First Samuel. It is a story of monumental failures ending with Saul's violent death by his own hand, 1 Samuel 31 tells us. Then David reigned for the first 40 years of the first millennium B.C. He was to be remembered as Israel's greatest king. The brilliant but complicated story of his extraordinary reign is the subject of 2 Samuel. The opening words of 2 Samuel mention three events that are very important. They mention the death of Saul, the victory of David, and two days that changed everything. The fact that few today are even aware of these events underlines the importance of hearing the message of the book that begins this way. The story of King David has more to teach us than almost any other human life in the history of this world. There is a reason that Jesus Christ was known as the son of David and that David in all of his actions as king points to one who would be greater than him, the Messiah himself. So as we dive into chapter 2, I basically have two points I want to get across. First, we're going to look, how shall the kingdom come? Israel's in a position now where they're without a leader, they're scattered. Um, there's chaos, there's very little hope, very little cohesion, 
And so how is the king going to come out of all this chaos and all this mess? And then the second part, we'll look at the psalm of lament that David composed and learn something of it. And so it's a, a little bit of an unusual text, but we will take our time as we go through it. First of all, the Amalekite who shows up is a very interesting character. It, uh, he wore all the signs of genuine grief. When he approached them, how did he look? Well, his clothes were torn. He had dirt on his head. Uh, and he had come from the Philistine-Israelite conflict on Mount Gilboa, located about 18 miles southwest of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. The Philistines had carried the day and trounced Israel. King Saul had been severely wounded, and not wanting the Philistines to have the delight of slowly torturing him to death, he had fallen on his own sword. It was a dark, dark day for Israel. Jonathan himself, uh, Saul's son and David's friend, was killed. Life was bleak, it was dark and bloody, and it was very gray in the kingdom of God. And everything about this Amalekite seemed to reflect the disaster that Israel was in. After all, no one will traipse over 80 miles unless one is in earnest about something. The trip would have taken several days, but it does not take David long to conclude he's a murderer, and it doesn't take us as readers long to find out that he's more accurately a liar. You know, this is where your Bible contradiction people go nuts. They love to say, well, 1 Samuel 31 gives the account of Saul falling on his own sword. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, you got another story of a guy who says he killed him. And see, the Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. The Bible accurately and inerrantly reports what people do and say. It just so happens that the Bible reports at times lies that are being told. And this guy is one of the biggest liars yet. He gets 10 Pinocchios or worse. And it doesn't take David long to, to get to the bottom of that, but the passage, the passage itself raises a lot of questions that David faced in 1 Samuel 24 and in 1 Samuel 26. How is the kingdom to come into David's hands? This man has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. He's already been anointed to be the king, and now it seems like the opportunity has presented itself, but will he wait for it to come as the gift of Yahweh, or will he take matters into his own hands and seize it by his own initiative? The king before him, Saul, was characterized by taking matters into his own hands and attempting to solve them by his own wisdom, his own resources, his own initiative. That is what the scripture calls unbelief. That is what the scripture calls a lack of wisdom. Saul did not know how to wait on or wait for the Lord because he was cut off from the Lord speaking to him and, and he had no access. So therefore Saul was always, even at the end of the life, he takes matters into his own hands and falls on his own sword. So David 
being the king that God established. You know, early in Samuel, the people wanted a king, and Yahweh was reluctant to give him a king because he said, a king, if you get a king, he's going to take your children, he's going to take your women, he's going to take your weapons, he's going to take your men, he's going to take and take and take and take exactly what Saul did. But there's another kind of king that God has anointed whose name is David. And he's going to be a different kind of king. So he does not immediately take matters into his own hand. If it had been some of us, we would have been riding into uh, uh, Israel, proclaiming with all kinds of pomp and majesty that the new king is here. Apparently, the Amalekite held that there were times when Yahweh's promises, if he knew of them, required a slight push. Neither David nor the writer agrees with him. The story, as we have seen, seems to say that kingdom principles govern kingdom life. And we see several of those principles operating in his te this particular text. First, we begin with the exposure of falsehood, the exposure of falsehood. A casual reader who comes fresh from 1 Samuel 31 into this chapter and hears the Amalekite story may say, but I thought Saul finished himself off at Gilboa, and here's this Amalekite who claims his friendly act of euthanasia did the honors. Do we have two accounts? Not really. We have the narrator's description of what happened, 1 Samuel 31, and we have the Amalekite story and what happened, chapter, verses 3 through 10 of 2 Samuel 1. The solution is simple. The Amalekite lied. If you ever have a choice in Scripture between the writer and an Amalekite, always believe the writer, not the Amalekite. Have you ever met an Amalekite you could trust? And if you lived during that era, you would say, no, I have not. Now, some might object that I'm a little quick to the draw to condemn this guy. Uh, if so, it helps to point out that there's a suspicious hole in his story as he tells it. And I should think that David would have seen it at once. Saul, it is not likely that Saul would have been so isolated in the thick of the battle with no armor-bearer or royal contingent at his side. And he had to depend on an Amalekite who accidentally came by to administer the coup de grace. Yet, if the Amalekites wanted a reward from David, he almost had to build the story a little bit. He had to pad the story a little bit. He could have said he slithered around like a coward waiting for Saul to fall so that when the way was clear, he could pounce on the royal insignia Certainly he had to explain how he obtained the crown and armband, but how much more gallant it sounded if in the thick of the battle he uh, coolly and kindly assisted Saul in death with dignity. A far more rewardable scenario. The Amalekite received just justice in verses 15 and 16, but it is a just justice mixed with irony. He's punished for what he said, he did, even though he didn't really do it. <laughs> He's punished for lying. And he received what he should have received, even though it was not based on fact. The judgment of God found him, found him in his lie, and repaid him in the line with his intent, not his deed. 
So the first page of another biblical book, we run straight into the God who exposes us, who delights in truth in the inward parts, who sets our secret sins in the light of his presence. Nor will this be the last episode. There will be Amalekites in the church, always. Ananias and Sapphira will feel the need to boost their self-esteem within the Jerusalem church. In light of that, they end up in twin graves because of it. Even if we could fool kings and churches, Jesus has taught us that no one will escape judgment day. There will be disclosure. There is something concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Yet strangely, we find ourselves cuddling with this absurd notion that if we have duped man's eye, we have eluded heaven's gaze as well. God knows us. He sees us through and through. He knows every thought, every motive, every movement, every uh, neural synapse that occurs in our brain. God knows it. He sees it. Mark Twain was noted for saying, It's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's passages like this that I do understand that bothers me greatly. And this was an exposure of what was in the man's heart. Uh, there was once a little Scottish lad who thought this particular way. An unresolved misdemeanor had occurred in Dingwall. A boy had entered a garden and stripped the plum trees. Several months had gone by, yet the culprit was unknown. Then came Sabbath when there was a children's service at the church and the pastor, Dr. John Kennedy, was preaching. And he spoke from Psalm 11:4 of the one whose eyes behold and eyelids try the children of men. Then he came to this dramatic conclusion. The boy is with us this evening who stole the plums. I shall not look in the direction of his seat lest I betray him, but I know him. I know him. I saw him from my study window, saw the wall leaped, the pockets filled, the breathless race home. He thought no one saw, but I saw the whole, and God saw too. God doesn't have to read the paper in the morning to know what news happened, okay? God, God is ever-present. God not only sees, but he witnesses it all. God knows through and through. And there will be in a judgment day, a judgment day to call to account people for falsehood, lying, duplicity. The same principle holds for Scottish lads and for conniving Am Amalekites in Yahweh's kingdom. We have to do with a God who exposes and judges. We must not think that this episode at Ziklag is unconnected in the accidents of history. Rather, what you see in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and the Amalekites case is a preview of what will be true on the last day. The more I study the judgment of God, the more I study the eternal punishment of God, the more I shake inside at the prospect of judgment outside of Jesus Christ. People who you know, people who I know, 
will be called to account. And the exposure will occur. And every mouth will be stopped. Nobody will argue. Nobody will plead excuses. Nobody will blame it on anyone else. They will be stopped. Judgment is coming. And so, there's nothing concealed, Jesus said, that will not be disclosed. He is the one God who has authorized him to judge the secrets of men, so Romans chapter 2 tells us. But let's look next at the urgency of the grief that we see in this chapter. It, it sounds strange to suggest that the urgency of Greek grief should mark life in God's kingdom, but the text insists this should be the case. We can better appreciate it when uh, we look at verses 11 and 12, and if we step back and see the way the whole story is told. It's like this. We have the arrival of the Amalekite, verses 1 through 2, a conversation between David and the Amalekite, three questions, verses 3 through 10, the reaction, verses 11 and 12, a continued conversation, verses 13 and 14, and elimination of the Amalekite in 15 and 16. So the structural center of this story are verses 11 and 12. Note also that you would have never told the story in this way. You would prefer, I think, to continue with verse 13 immediately after verse 10 and leave the other out. Because in the story as it is, you get nervous about the Amalekite just standing there while all this grief goes on. You want to clean up the immediate situation with this informer, then you would tell of the reaction of David. But for our writer, the Amalekite can wait. He thinks the most important item in his story is the grief and wailing of David and his men over Israel. Her fallen leaders and troops, the people of Yahweh, have been crushed. Grief cannot wait. It can't wait. Now, I don't know if our writer has altered the strict chronological sequence of events or not. Biblical writers certainly are not bound by chronology. But I do think he has stood our literary tendencies on their heads by letting loose this hubbub of wailing immediately after the Amalekites' report. Nothing else matters except giving vent to this deep-felt anguish. Even executions can wait. The writer's use of the structure and sequence in this way is underscoring the importance of grief over God's people. And so the literary pattern of the text uh, would be akin to a third grade girl who when her schoolmate saw a giraffe striding across school during the yard afternoon playtime, when she goes home, she bursts into the kitchen with her giraffe story, even though her spelling test and pizza for lunch may temporarily have preceded a giraffe's debut. And such chronology is thrown to the winds because there's something more impressive. And the grief of David and his men is impressive. The condition of the people of God deeply disturbed them. And the same principle should control our life in the kingdom. Do we have an obligation to mourn over the unbelief, apostasy, and coldness in the visible church? It's not difficult for us who are sometimes 
evangelicals to observe and analyze and critique the apathy over faithful doctrine, the flirtations with paganism, and the infatuation with a politically correct moral social agenda which infects bodies of the institutional church. The peril of all this is, as we shall say, is that it's so easy to take up a conservative haughtiness a sort of humble version of Luke 18 where the Pharisee prays with himself that he thanks God he's not like this tax collector. Rather, such unbelief and error in the church should drive us into mourning and grief and prayer and sorrow. It calls for intercession more than pronouncements. Scripture is subtle. It begins with the literary technique of the writer and then brings us to our knees. There are times when the most appropriate response to what's wrong with everything is not to fix it or correct it, but first mourn and grieve over it. Something has been lost. But we also see the safety of fear in verses 13 through 16. The Amalekite assumes David is driven by the same passion for power he is, so he tells his story, shows off the trinkets that he's brought with him from the battlefield. David can only take him at his word. He has no way of independently at this point either confirming what the guy's saying, uh, though as noted above, there are holes in his story. David makes sure the Amalekite is no recent import, but has been living in Israel for some time. He therefore should have known better, and David asked him the pointed question, why are you not afraid to stretch out your hand and destroy Yahweh's anointed? The sanctity of Yahweh's anointed king had the status of dogma for David. The sacred respect for Saul in his official capacity was the principle that controlled David in all of the pursuits of Saul out to get him and kill him. The Amalekite had assumed that no scruples would stop David from seizing his kingship. David has uh, assumed that one fear should have stopped the Amalekite from destroying the king. Why were you not afraid, David asked. And David's question expresses a principle that should direct all kingdom ethics and behavior. There is a kingdom, there is in kingdom living such a thing as a healthy, saving fear, a fear that preserves a godly fear that should control us. There is respect for the reality of the divine person and presence. Let me do nothing so unbecoming, David would think. That is the way kingdom servants should live, controlled by fear grounded in love, a fear of offending our God and our Savior. Only Amalekites would call that pathological. Time for confession. I admit that this text really doesn't furnish us with the most positive, uplifting, falsehood uh, points. We have here falsehood, grief, and fear. But uh, as every preacher says, don't blame me. It's not my fault. It's this lying, conniving Amalekite who puts God's word into this minor key. <laughs> But if there's truth in the inner person, do I earnestly grieve over the desperate condition of the church? Do I live fearing only to displease my king? At times, the responsibility of the church is to stand as a prophetic, a prophet, 
a prophetic critique of the world around them, and that's appropriate. And there are times when we should take a stand for doctrine and, and build and encourage sound doctrine. And I'm not saying we don't do this, but there's times to cry about stuff too. There's times to grieve about stuff. There's times to hurt over what we see the condition of things as they are. And so that's important from this text. Point two, how the mighty are fallen. And we'll wrap this one up at a pretty good pace. The title of the message today is Good Grief. Not good grief, but good grief. Okay? There's a uh, poignant story in the diary of Andrew Bonar, the 19th century Scottish pastor. He notes the death of Isabella, his wife, of 17 years on October 14, 1864. Subsequent entries reveal his state of mind and sorrow. But what caught my attention, but it never surprised me, was how Bonar inevitably refers to his loss every year on the anniversary of Isabella's death. Grief remains. Sorrow is not merely a sad event but a continuing process. Grief not only erupts, it abides. And because it abides, there must be some mechanism, some procedure, which enables God's people to express that grief in a legitimate way. And that is what David does in this passage, in his lament over Israel, Saul, and Jonathan. He provides a vehicle by which Israel can continue her mourning. Yet it must come with caution. We are so tempted to jump at this text and psychologize it as if David meant, meant to lead a seminar on how to cope with grief. We must not turn David into another Christian guru churning out how-to books. Though he may give us some help facing grief, we must not start there. We must sit with David at Ziklag and let our minds replay the disaster at Gilboa we must not pull David into our time. We must go back and sit with him and understand him. And so in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, he gives us a psalm of lament, or a song of lament. And he talks about grief and discipline. David lamented this lament over Saul and Jonathan. He produced a self-conscious, reflective expression of grief that could be reduced to written form. What is a lament? A lament is a formal expression of grief or distress, one that can be written, read, learned, practiced, and repeated. A lament differs from the informal, spontaneous, immediate outburst of grief like those in verses 11 and 12. A lament is no less sorrowful or sincere, but it is a vehicle for the mind as well as for the emotions. A lament is an expression of thoughtful grief. When I was in seminary, people always hate to hear pastors when they say that phrase, when I was in seminary. That's a hundred years ago. No, it wasn't quite a hundred. But we had a community lament. We were studying this in uh, wisdom literature 
It's one of the courses I took in seminary. And so the Old Testament professor, instead of just talking about lamenting, decided we would have a worship service in the chapel that was totally devoted to lamenting together. And it was carefully constructed. And I don't even remember what we were lamenting over, but we were lamenting. And I, I went to that service, and it made a huge impression on me of how grief thoughtfully and carefully articulated has some healing power in it. God uses it, as it were, to bring about healing in our souls. And so, in a written lament, the words cannot simply be dumped or gushed. Here, uh, it's not a vomiting of certain feelings, but the lament is certainly not cold or objective or detached. Rather, the intensity of one's emotions unite with the discipline of someone's mind to produce structured sorrow that other people can enter into. And I wonder here if this is a healthy thing for the people of God to do, especially when we lose Christian friends or loved ones or family members. Along with our emotional grief, should we not express our reflective grief? The sorrows and wounds that God's people receive from their losses are usually not miraculously healed after a short time of emotional catharsis. And sometimes in the church, there's such an impatience with grief. Why can't Alan get over Carol's death? Or Connie over Tom's? It's been 18 months. Why can't that mother get beyond the death of her 10-year-old? But the lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep, it's ongoing, and it invites us to enter the discipline of expressing that grief in words that convey our anguish, in images that picture our despair, in written prayers that verbalize our despondency. Why should God's people be shoddy in their sorrow? You need to journal. If you're a journal kind of person, write those things out, articulate them. That's what David is doing here. But grief also has to do with disgrace. Shame aggravates grief. And the shame David feels is associated with two places. One of them is Philistia, the other is Gilboa. David would curse Gilboa here with barrenness because it is the place where Israelite shields litter the corpses they did not protect. Gilboa is a national disgrace. But the shame in Philistia is likely even more galling. David knows his command is futile. There's no way he can censor Philistine press releases. They most certainly will broadcast in Gath and will be on the big TV screen in every uh, uh, bar in Ashkelon. But really what gets to David the most is the way the Philistine women will be leading cheers and trash-talking Israel. And as David and every Israelite knows, not only Israel, but Israel's God. For implicit in verse 20 is the recognition that Israel's shame is religious, not merely military. All over Philistia, the foolish faithful were gathering to sing, Glory be to Dagon. The sorry excuse for a God that the Philistines thought had given them the recent victory. Yet such grace, disgrace can be useful. At least David intends to use it. David ordered them to teach the sons of Judah the bow. 
The bow is the title of David's dirge in verses 19 through 27. David wanted the fighting men of his own tribe to know this sad song, to know it by heart, to have it crammed in every pore of their body. Why should the army of Judah always have the lyrics of defeat ringing in their ears? Because David intends it as part of a motivational military training. Gilboa was not the last time Israel would fight the Philistines, and David wanted his men to remember Gilboa, remember the tragedy, remember the pagan arrogance. It wanted them deeply stirred and moved for the next time. You remember uh, when I was a boy, one of the favorite movies that I ever saw as a child was The Alamo. And... uh, you know what happened at the Alamo. That was a Mexican-American war. As uh, the Mexican troops came, uh, 156 men at the Alamo. I don't know how many troops Santa Ana had upward of, I don't know, anybody know? Huh? 5,000? Were you there? <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. 5,000. That's a lot more than 153. But anyway, out of that, the fighting men of Texas said what often remember the Alamo. David is saying, remember Gilboa. Remember what happened there. Remember how Saul and Jonathan and the people of Israel were destroyed that day. Remember that. Don't forget that. Remember that and use it. We are uh, far removed from Gilboa. We are not biding our time until we strike the Philistines. But David's charge to remember Gilboa still places claims upon us. David knew that sadness packs a punch that frivolity can never muster. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4 says, I'd rather go to a funeral than to a party. Why? I'd rather go to a funeral than a party. Why does the writer of Ecclesiastes say that? Because he's writing wisdom literature and he's saying, going to a party is just partying. Going to a funeral makes you face reality that you need to face. Every time you look at a person in a casket, you automatically, unless you know a trick I don't, assume that one day you're going to be there. And it makes you ask and face hard questions. And so does grief. Grief forces us to consider these issues. And that's what drives intercessory prayer as a believer. And so David gives us a model of grief. But finally he ends with grief and gratitude. Verses 22 and 23 are distinct because they are descriptive. They say something about Saul and Jonathan. Let me address that straight up front in your face. Uh, some Old Testament scholars and other people, especially uh, those of sociological and psychological uh, profession, <coughs> argue that David had a relationship with Jonathan that was homosexual. And they argue that the reason Saul was always throwing his spear at David was because he knew Jonathan and David were carrying on as homosexuals. There's absolutely not one iota of evidence that that's true. When it says that David loved, his love for Jonathan 
surpassed that of his love for a woman was a military way of speaking of loyalty. As a matter of fact, that word for love is used for love for God. It's used for love for Israel. It's Ahab or Ahab. And David's expression of that was not certainly saying, and plus David had multiple wives. Um, So we know that without a shadow of a doubt, that was not tolerated among the people of God. And certainly as the narrative goes on, it exposes everything David did that was sinful, and if this was that, it would have been pointed out. But what I'm trying to tell you is, he's expressing a commitment of warriors who, there's a a esprit de corps, there's a, a connection of men, I understand, I was not a soldier, but who, it's among any people who go through hardship together and connect through that process of hardship that glues them together in relationships that will last the rest of their lives. I get that, I understand that, and I think that's what David is talking about here. His grief over Jonathan is that kind of grief. And he was grateful for everything here. David uh, even complimented uh, both Saul and Jonathan, and Saul in particular. No one should be surprised that David is magnanimous in speaking of Saul. I think David graciously allowed Jonathan's character to color Saul's at this point his appreciation seems to center on their not being parted even in death friend of friends that jonathan was to david he never swayed jonathan from loyalty to his father or from standing beside him at the last david's gratitude highlights jonathan's faithfulness to his calling even when this calling was unreward and in this world's terms hopeless so That is to be true as we grieve together. You know, there's always, uh, you've heard that story of the preacher at a funeral, and he gets up, and he starts preaching about how wonderful this man was. He was a godly man. He was a force for good in the community. He was a faithful member of the church. And all of a sudden, the widow gets up. She walks, she looks over in the casket. And the preacher says, ma'am, are you okay? He said, I just want to be sure I was at the right funeral. (laughs) Old joke, huh? But notice that David, in this lament, highlights everything he could positive about Saul. Saul was a mixed bag. I grieve over Saul. I like Saul a lot even though I understand his paranoia and all that stuff. But the point of this narrative is to teach us that in the midst of life, we're going to find ourselves in the throes of grief. And it's not going to be a pill you can take that will get rid of it. It's not going to be a course that you can take to master it. It will master you. It will abide. And you will learn to live with it and ultimately deal with it, but remember that when we go to heaven, he'll wipe away all our tears, and we will sorrow and grieve no more, but here we will grieve. With Jesus present, with the Holy Spirit present, we will grieve, and we have to learn how to do that. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the narrative and how it points us to realities in this world, difficulties of living life on this side of eternity. We do pray that you would lift us up today and encourage us no matter where we find ourselves. There's no temptation taken us that is not common to man who you yourself will provide a way of coping and escaping the difficulty of the trial. And we pray that we would lay hold of that promise for ourselves even today. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who have tasted and have seen that God is good. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.